Anti-Racist Film Club podcast, a production of The Commons, the online faith space created by the South Sound Methodist Co-op. But for the purposes of this podcast, we're just a bunch of people excited to watch movies and grow together through the lens of anti-racism. I'm your host, Lauren Fontanella, and today I'm joined by Pastor Kellen Corliss from Tumwater UMC. How are you today? I'm doing well. It's a little dreary out, Mm -hmm. but... um... I'm glad that it's finally fall in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it was really hanging on to summer for like the last month or so. (laughs) Truly, truly. Uh, So I guess we should say the film that we're going to discuss today is uh, Lion. Uh, Had you seen the film before? Yeah, actually, um, back in 2019, so this is a 2016 film, Mm -hmm. but um, back in 2019, I I applied and started seminary, which is... um, a graduate program that all clergy people, uh, pastors, people who want to go into ministry need to do in order to be ordained. It's a three-year program. So I moved to Boston and actually before we even started our program, we were um, asked to watch this movie before coming into our orientation together. Hmm. And the idea around that whole piece there was we were focusing on the themes of dwelling and seeking, two movements, spiritual movements that you see happening a lot in the movie. And so the idea of um, where do we find home, especially for people who are moving to a new place to start a new program. Mm -hmm. And then, where do you seek out? Because it's uh, it's important to have both, you know? So, uh, of course, the tears came the first time and the <laughs> second time uh, I watched that movie uh, as I started seminary. Mm-hmm. But this is, uh, it was my third time watching it in preparation. What's, um, have you had an experience with the film before uh, us getting ready for this? Yeah, so I think this is the first time uh, I had watched it all the way through. I know my family had maybe rented it like on Netflix back when we were still getting like C- uh, CDs, DVDs yeah. um, in the mail. And I think this was one of the movies we had. And I wasn't really interested in it. It was the kind of thing where it's like I was doing math homework or something. <laughs> and it was just playing on the TV and my mom was crying in the corner. And so I wasn't really invested in it. Yeah. Um, but this go round, I really did get a uh, very connected to the characters and I thought it was great and I was almost like kicking myself for not enjoying it uh, when I first saw it uh, quite a few years ago yeah well I feel like that happens with these um, kind of cinematic ambiance focused movies like there's so many shots in this movie that are just like um, a violin and like a Mm -hmm. panning shot and so if you weren't paying close attention you might be like oh this is just some soapy movie right when you when you get invested it's uh it's a real emotional roller coaster (laughs) yeah i mean something that like clicked together this is the second time i watched it was um the opening sequence has a lot of just shots of the landscape with Mm -hmm. like you were saying the violin um, and the orchestra music and it's it takes a while for the plot to actually get going because there's at least a a couple minutes Mm -hmm. of um just this intro of just the landscape and you're not really connected to the characters or anything Uh, but it comes back in in one of the climaxes of the film it's like the landscape is being caught in like memories and glimpses. And so when the footage is brought back and juxtaposed with the Google earth images, because we were watching the, uh, the intro, we are familiar with the landscape, not as intimately as the characters are, but at least a little bit enough to realize what they're, the filmmakers are trying to connect. Right. Yeah. Uh, there's, I don't want to get too far into it before we kind of introduce 
why we're watching this film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like as memory becomes and um, looking to the past uh, becomes like a, a motif of the movie where we're really drawn to the landscape of the land and the contrast between the two landscapes that become the primary settings for the movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, we might be getting too into the weeds before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could just hop right into it. Um, why Why was this film chosen? Yeah. Um, so uh, a part of what we do, and, and this is just me being honest, on behalf of the co-op pastors who help to plan all of this, is really try to crowdsource movies. This is the third year of anti-racist film club's existence. And so... Um, because we watch these films together, uh, we have to make sure that we have the license to do that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes we'll be com- you know, talking about what's coming next and we'll talk about these movies we're really passionate about and we'll look up the distribution licenses <laughs> and wah, 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 we ah. can't watch it. And so sometimes we'll just get in these conversations and a lot of times we really want to focus our movies on the American experience because it really helps us ground us in our anti-racist work as both people working on our own racism and uh, people trying to walk in in Christian faith mm-hmm. for for justice, but um, sometimes we need to go beyond that. And really, Lion, although set in Australia and India, shares a lot of the same motifs of of identity, of cultural assimilation and loss, and also just like struggle of uh, the experience of people of color that have come or been taken out of their home settings Mm -hmm. and then forced to live in a white dominant culture. And so Lion just felt like a good fit and we had the rights to show it. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to, to read a little description of what this film is. If you listeners at home haven't seen it yet, Uh, this is a good place to pause the podcast, watch the film, or just enjoy the spoilers that come after this moment. (laughs) Lion is a 2016 film based on the book A Long Way Home by Saru Brewley about the true story of reconnecting with his birth family after 25 years of separation. Starring major Hollywood stars like Dev Patel, Nicole Kidman, and Rooney Mara, Lion was nominated for six Oscars and won two BAFTAs, one for Patel's role as Best Supporting Actor and the other for Best Adapted Screenplay. It is currently the fifth highest grossing Australian film of all time. Growing up in impoverished India, five-year-old Saru is separated from his brother at the train station and is accidentally accidentally trapped on a two-day journey away from home. Lost in Calcutta and unable to speak the local language Bengali, Saru was eventually brought to an orphanage where he's then adopted by the Brearley family in Tasmania. 25 years later, adult Saru, now a hotel management student in Melbourne, begins searching for his hometown in India. Using Google Earth to cross-match thousands of train stations with his own memory, Saru loses touch with his girlfriend, adoptive family, and all life outside of its obsessive search. Will Saru find his birth family? Will he lose a life he's made in the meantime? Lion is the journey of one man on the impossible quest to find his way home. Mm, Yeah, and it has you at the edge of your seat the whole time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I, I think that as we start to dig into and unpack now that we can get into the story of things it feels natural to start at the the beginning Mm -hmm. and before i do this uh i just have to name the um the experience of saru and it's important as we're on this journey when we watch any of these movies that depict an amazing story an amazing circumstance we have to realize that this is just one instance of 
a young boy in India. Right. And this is not, this is not an experience that every boy in India has. And so, um, yeah, we see Saru looking up to his brother. You know, he, he lives in a small community and he goes out with his brother, ends up stealing coal from train stations in order to sell the coal at a market for food for his family. And so even at like the age of five, um, Saru is trying to provide for his family. Mm-hmm. And the real crux of that beginning where he becomes lost comes when he tries to overextend himself to um, to go to the train station and work the night with his brother. And that's when he loses his brother and he jumps on the train looking for him and after two days ends up in Kolkata. Mm-hmm. And I just think about um, this isn't the case for... Um, for all people, but just like the the traumas of of our past that affect so much into the future. So he spends months living in this place that speaks a different dialect from where he grew up. They, you know, they were speaking Hindi, and now he's in speaking Bengali. There's that moment where he's just running around all day trying to get his way back home, and then at the end of the day, he feels like he has this moment of safety, and lays down with the other kids there and then is woken up in the middle of the night by kidnappers who are trying to take these children into into trafficking Mm -hmm. you know so like trauma after trauma and then his experience um later with um nor and and um rama rama her partner who um, groom him for being sold into trafficking again? Potentially, the, it's uh, potentially. it's ambiguous what their intentions were, um, right. because we're seeing it the interaction through the the eyes of Saru. Yes, it's a true story that like the, this is inspired inspired by a real event. He doesn't know what they were planning, but he, he's said in interviews that he just had a gut feeling that it was bad and that he needed to get out of there. Yeah, and thanks for checking me on that because that's just the the story as it goes, and so. Um, it's really interesting the way that that all leads to his experience ending up in the orphanage. Mm-hmm. I think maybe this will be the, a good entry point into one of these topics that I think will bridge across the Indian and Australian experience into the American experience, which is the adoption systems of the world. Saru ends up in, in the orphanage. And I think one of the interesting pieces is you see him in the presence of so many other Indian children. And then pretty quickly, he's like selected to be adopted by this Australian family. Right. It like begs the question of like, are adoption systems around the world, or at least how they were, this is set in the 80s. I know that they've changed um, since then. There's a lot less international adoption happening nowadays, but um, you're left wondering what made Saru adoptable, you know? Was he young enough or was he cute enough? I don't know. I was always, I was left with that question at that point in the movie, thinking about our adoption system. Mm-hmm. One of the interviews I was watching was with um, Saru Brearley and his mother, Sue. And she was talking about the adoption process of getting both Saru and then uh, his adopted brother, Mantosh. Mantosh's adoption was much um, more logistically difficult. It took longer. I think it was a process that took years, mm-hmm. whereas Saru's was much quicker. Yeah. 
And I, I don't know which the movie in the movie uh, Saru's is initiated first, but from the interview, it sounded like it might have been the other way around. But I don't know. It was a very uh, it was they didn't go into much detail about that part of it. Yeah. But yeah, it, it does seem interesting because uh, Mantosh in the film is the one who's less adjusted throughout his entire life and has to do deal with some of the uh, the trauma that he experienced probably from living on the streets or even living in the orphanage, which itself was not a hospitable environment. Yeah. It might've been better than living on the street, but it was still sort of run like a prison yeah. or a juvenile detention center. And the, and the filmmakers want you to think that, you know, the imagery you, you, you walk by and you, you follow Sheru in it. And there's the kids up against the fence that are, you get that, that motif of um, you're now incarcerated, mm-hmm. you know, people who watch films are going to see that and think about, any film that they've seen where someone becomes incarcerated and they're walking to be uh, to the intake section of the jail and they see all the people banging against the, the rails, you know? Mm-hmm. And so um, it does begin to, you know, play on that. And, and we have such a history of that before the United States went to uh, the foster care system, which still has its flaws in it. Our orphanage systems were built the exact same way. And often uh, especially the history with the native populations in the United States of education schools where they would strip their cultural identity, where they would teach them how to assimilate to culture. So I'm thinking of Saru's experience, learning how to not eat with his hands, which was the cultural norm, mm-hmm. and, and to use cutlery so he would be prepared when he went to Australia. I mean, to the point where later on in the film, um, as he's an adult and he's eating at some some friend's house uh, and they happen to also be Indian right. and they're eating uh, an Indian meal, he's corrected and saying like, oh no, you're supposed to use your hands. Like you don't, don't use a fork or whatever he was attempting to use. And you see that a, a few different times of the ways that he's so adjusted to the Western customs yes. and etiquette. Yeah. And then also uh, his loss of language as well. Yeah. We, we brought it up a little bit earlier uh, in the discussion, but language is such an interesting motif in the film, mm-hmm. especially like the, the miscommunication, the way that that interferes with these infrastructures and systems. Yeah. Um, so yeah. from, from Saru, trying to walk around Calcutta and no one understanding what he's saying because he's literally speaking a different language mm-hmm. or um, when he's first on the train, I didn't really understand why b- people were just looking at him as he's going past and yelling for help and no one's having a reaction. They probably didn't understand what he was saying at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's part of the, the interesting piece, like, and we may, might not experience that as much in the American landscape, but mm-hmm. I'm sure that immigrants in the American landscape experience that all the time, right? especially children, children of immigrants. And we hear about that, like just um, in the news in the, in the past few years, you know, like children being separated from their parents at detention centers um, on the Southern border of the United States. Like this is not just something that happens in India, right? you know? And so children being separated from their parents for various reasons and then not having the systems in place to um, actually reunite them. And so talk about failed systems. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that the film claims that Saru didn't reconnect with his mother is that she couldn't read or write. So Mm -hmm. even if she saw the ads that he was missing, which she probably didn't because it was thousands of kilometers away, Mm 
she wouldn't, she might have like recognized the picture, maybe, but it, like all the information would have been useless unless there was someone in the community who could translate. Yeah. And I think as Christians, when we think about the adoption system, we have a lot of history to reckon with. Um, maybe not like as much. We at the co op or, or find ourselves Methodists. I shouldn't say we have a lot to reckon with as Methodists um, in our history with adoption mm-hmm. and our history with re-education programs, Um, even in Washington state, like over the Yakima nation, like atrocities committed there for, uh, towards children of the Yakima nation, Mm -hmm. but coming out of evangelical circles as well, adoption at the time that the movie was set was really pushed and, and, and in a, not just an adoption locally, but, but more saving children from other countries. Mm -hmm. And so you get a real, white savior complex going on with parents. And I see that, I think that we see that happening with Sue and John later in the film. They, I mean, you see it at each step, but uh, when Saru is having his identity crisis starting to spiral, searching for home, he tries to um, save face, right? Save face with his mother, not tell his mother that he's looking for his biological mother right in this conversation between sue and saru she says um i just it comes to light that she wasn't infertile and she which is what he assumed uh, most of his life is that the, the only reason that he had been adopted was because his parents couldn't have their own children right and it kind of comes to light that she said i i just wanted to make a better life for you all to like recognize uh, the spectrum of complexity that there is around adoption and racism or like white savior attitude uh, in our in our system like yes saru was in a really tough place and his life probably wouldn't have been had been the way that it turned out to be if he hadn't had been adopted. And this is the story for so many people. But it's easy, I think, for us to hold on to one case, like um, I can look at this adopted child and then think of an entire culture or an entire people group, like in that same way. Mm-hmm. If Saru had this experience and he was came to a, uh, you know, a first world, I'm doing air quotes here through the airwaves um, <laughs> nation and assimilated and had all this opportunity to go to college and everything and have this life where he could surf and, you know, enjoy wine and all this kind of stuff. Then, then all Indians, like not experiencing the breadth of what you could experience if you were in Australia, you know? Right. I feel it's easy for us to get in that trap. I think one of the things I appreciated about this film is that it had a a fairly nuanced take on this where it wasn't um, condemning the Brearley family Mm -hmm. for taking Saru away from India and making it much, much harder for him to eventually make his way back to the village where he was really from. It's not condemning them. It's not really condemning anything other than the brutality of the system that he was in in the orphanage and on the streets and like the true atrocities of like human trafficking that the film is very much against but in terms of the two lives that he had the film never argues that one was better than the other they both just were the realities of the situation yes and the reason he doesn't tell his parents isn't because he's ashamed to be looking at the past or that he doesn't think that he would they would necessarily support him but because it was a very difficult 
decision. He wanted to make sure that he could do it before le- le- filling them in on what he was doing. Yeah, a lot of it has to has the mentality of like what happens happens. It's not for better or for worse or meant to be. It's just the reality of life and it's not necessarily better or worse yeah yeah well that's and i think that that's a really good point now that i'm thinking about the reunion scene towards the end of the film mm-hmm. you never you never get a sense that it's like oh this dirty village you know or um poor like poor mother or sister that he reunites with it's actually it's it's beautiful in its own right you know it's different and it's beautiful and colorful and loving Mm -hmm. the people that surround the community the like love that's there or like the even even like the the strangers that he's like he shows a picture and he says his name and then the man takes him to his mother you know and that's just different than his experience was either in Tasmania or in Melbourne right and you're right the, the the film isn't condemning or saying yeah, of either but we we see Saru really wrestle with that and I feel like that kind of takes us into a conversation of identity like mm-hmm. I, I think the the closest it the film does get to like or to showing the way that he's wrestling with this aspect of the transformation of his life is when someone asks like what like what did his mother do and he says that she couldn't read and it was like oh like what what was her job and it's like oh she she carried rocks Mm -hmm. and then the reaction from the people is like that like that was her job yeah and and you see him sort of having to like justify that or explain that to himself um and to appreciate like why like my life is extremely different than what it would have been yeah but then the film doesn't go further to say like and that's why it's so much better that i go to college and all these things yeah, well, and, and it does show us like the internalized biases that folks who live live and grow. And this is where we can think about racism affecting all people. This isn't just a, you know, a white person problem or an Indian person problem or an Australian problem. Like this isn't everybody th- a problem because in that setting at that party that we've mentioned, it was people from all types of cultures that had come together and met at college, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Some of them Indian, some other, but all of them recoiled when he said that. And and that was like, we are brought under this guise of thinking that if you are a laborer, your life must be awful. Yeah, and it creates that kind of reaction that we saw and then the guilt of, like the survivor's guilt of Saru. Mm-hmm. I'm not in this scenario anymore. Well, I mean, at that same party, there's another moment. What triggers his desire to really start looking? Because um, it's clearly been on his mind for years. But like, what really is the catalyst for his search uh, is when he sees the uh, jalabi, mm-hmm. which was uh, a delicacy that he had always talked with his brother. Like, one day we're going to make so much money that we can buy this food and then he the next time he encounters it it's just sitting on a plate on mass in right uh, his friend's house yeah and so he gets this moment this like he it's almost like um when we repress our traumas Mm. from our childhood Mm -hmm. and uh he has this triggering moment where he he um yeah he realizes like this was what I wanted this was the highest thing that I wanted and my life is such a different perspective now 
and he's grappling with that. And I think the movie does a good way. Like they get together in the afternoon and you know that it's bright out and then it cuts later when they're kind of wrestling with the realization that Saru had just had about, you know, he says, I'm not, I'm not from Kolkata. And he starts, that's like the the beginning of him starting to question his identity, mm-hmm. which I feel like is, it's a real complicated thing to ask. Like when I think about my identity here in the United States, I am a white person, but my cultural identity is actually pretty weak because of this norm uh, and the, this white supremacist culture that forced this melting pot attitude. Right. So because of the color of my skin, the my grandparents and their grandparents, because we've been in the United States for a long time, they gave up their cultural identity in order to fit into this normalized white Anglo-Saxon Protestant capitalist <laughs> um, identity. And so we're left with kind of a lack of identity as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what was... Um interesting to me personally about this film just because of my own academic experience is that I took a class one time on uh, new immigration cinema no sorry is immigration cinema in new Europe and Australia is not Europe but for the purposes of like western media it's mm-hmm. very similar right and a huge running theme in that class was looking at um, first, generation immigration cinema and then second generation immigration cinema and second generation immigration cinema had a huge running theme of uh, an intergenerational divide where the children of immigrants wanted to assimilate more and the first generation was hanging on to the culture because they didn't want to lose it and so that's where you get a lot of um, communities in England or in uh, what was another a lot of movies took place in Italy that we watched and uh, uh, Sweden I think was another big one but anyway that was interesting for this film because Saru didn't have that he was by nature assimilated just by the family that he was adopted by he didn't have the community that wanted to hang on to the cultural identity Mm -hmm. so he didn't really have a reason to do that it wasn't helpful in any way at least when he was five years old Mm -hmm. it like he didn't need to cook recipes that he remembered or uh eat with his hands or even hang on to hindi his native language Um, to the point where when he does make his way home and meet his mother again he needs a translator right yeah it's so it's so real and like i think that saru is for us, the viewer, an example of both the positive and the negative, like the personal positive and the negative of successful cultural assimilation. Mm -hmm. Like you lose your language, you lose cultural practices and norms, whether it's eating or whether it's relating to other people. But he also had a very smooth life in Australia. By all means, Saru is Australian by the time he's an adult before he's Indian, right? Right. And I mean, he even has a line where he's with the the college group Mm -hmm. and they're asking everyone where they're from. And he says that he was adopted from Calcutta. And then he says that, oh, and then then people are trying to relate to him and saying like, oh, I have family in Calcutta or various other um, areas. And then he kind of shuts it down by saying like, oh, I'm not 
I think he says like I'm not really Indian because mm-hmm. he just very much identifies as Australian. Like even when the the that part of the conversation is introduced, someone asks him like, "Oh, born and raised in." Um, I think he's from Hobart, Tasmania, mm-hmm. and he and he had to think about it for a second because I, I it, that it read to me like he was just nodding along, like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna agree with what you're saying," because yeah, I'm I'm Australian, and then he decides to sort of get into the conversation of actually I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting, and we see the exact same thing happening in that conversation when they're like, "Oh, so you must like cricket, you know, a huge sport for." Oh, both that was such countries. an awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah, and he's like but do you root for the Indians or do you root for the Australians? And he says, oh, always Australians. And the, and the Indian guy who's striking him up is like, oh, yeah, it's that interesting. Like when people try to make connections, but you have assimilated, you, may, you might lose that cultural connection piece, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, another piece of that, another dimension, I think, is the contrast between Saru and Mantosh. Yes. How we see... Mantosh come the film isn't really clear if it's um a developmental disability or just like an impulse control thing with his Mm self-harm you can tell that the film wants us to at least infer that his assimilation was not as complete or um I should say smooth as Saru's was right we see him like at the beginning of the transition the 25 year later mark and he forgets to show up to meals and he's struggling I think you're supposed to infer that he's struggling with alcoholism and can't keep a job because he asks for Saru to give him one once he comes back as a hotel manager Mm -hmm. it's that piece of like it's not always going to go well when you rip someone from their home. Right. And even Saru has a line um, to his mother in the film and he apologizes for not being a blank slate, both he and Mantosh mm-hmm. um, making the point that like Mantosh is more or a less smooth assimilation is more visible than Saru's, but it's not a complete one and they both had baggage. Yeah. And yeah, that that go, it feeds into what I'm saying about this film being nuanced in more than one way and having that dimension that you mentioned. It's not like hailing anyone as a hero. Um it's just depicting the reality of the situation. Yeah. And I think that that's that's probably the biggest learning when we think about our anti-racist work when we watch this film and then try to dig deeply about it is that we have to get away from a binary Mm -hmm. in all aspects of understanding our anti-racism, whether this is in cultural assimilation or in the adoption process, or even in the like finding of identity. We can't look at adoption and say cross-cultural adoption is always evil because we know that that's not true no yeah absolutely not people are given opportunities when a system fails them in one place to be loved and cared for by another family and find identity in that um but then on the other side of things like there is baked into the history and the current status of cross-cultural adoption that leads to, or that is based in like a white supremacist, white savior culture. And so it's a both and of parents working on their own work, maybe if they come from a dominant culture Mm -hmm. and children working on finding identity. It's imperative that whether this is like a real part of our lives, like we have adopted cross-culturally or on our own journeys with thinking about how we interact with cultures or think about 
other places around the planet, you know, that it's not just a binary. It's not good, bad, that it's this journey of complicated stuff. Exactly. In a similar vein with like culturally assimilating, we have the positives of like being a part of the community that you live in and belong to, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of where you came from, there is a a cultural communicate, like Saru is able to, you know, he connects with people because he is Australian and he lives in Australia. Whereas he begins to, to see the other side of that eventually, you know, that flip side of it is when he begins to feel that guilt of losing his culture and not feeling like he has a home. I remember when him and his girlfriend, Lucy, Lucy, thank you, are kind of in the climax of their arguments. He really um, has difficulty. He's got guilt. He says, like, I live in all of this privilege. We live in all of this privilege while, like, I don't know what's happening to my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, like, even joining into a, a culture or learning and growing up in a certain way when you've been taken from that, that's got positives and negatives. And it's just part of the journey to like name that, understand that, and then have grace for the people who are working through it or, you know, the ways that we're working through it. Yeah. So as people are watching Lion, maybe for the first time, maybe for the second time, uh, maybe you paused the podcast earlier when we told you to, and you're going to go back (laughs) and rewatch it later. What questions, Pastor Kellen, do you want people to be thinking about as they're consuming this film? Yeah, I'd like you to ask yourself, like, regardless of the makeup of your family, like, what does family mean to you? I think that family and I think more broadly, like, identity with the people around you is like a huge theme here in Lion. And so what does identity say? And like, along the lines of whether you come from uh, culturally dominant Uh, identity here in the United States, white identity, or um, a different background? Like, how does that play in? Or how does the lack of your identity around your race play in? And how do you see that playing in the story of uh, Saru? Another question that I think folks could be pondering as they're watching or thinking or preparing for a conversation with others is like, I mean, this similarly stems off from the last one. Like, how does our identity play into our sense of like welcome and Mm. home Mm -hmm. in our communities? Like when we're thinking as anti-racists or like members of religious communities like how does the way that we behave as a community or how does our belonging as members of that community welcome or exclude uh, others i know that in church conversations there's this big question is there such thing as a multicultural church or a multi-ethnic church mm-hmm. the jury is out uh, scholars theologians sociologists are not in agreement about whether or not we actually can because mainly of the dominant identity of white supremacy uh, of just like white culture and how it um plays in many of our churches. However, there are exceptions. And so I guess when we think about our communities, whether that's a church community or just like a book group or our anti-racist film club, how do our identities, whether it's racial or religious or cultural, affect our sense of belonging in our groups? I think uh, more specifically, and a third thing to be pondering before we get together um, for our meeting is h- how do how do we navigate wanting to help people like Sue and John do? 
how do we navigate wanting to help people and serve and uh, perhaps even like adopt alongside the reality of the white savior complex of thinking um, of, of the narrative that many of us have been told that the United States or other similarly developed countries are just the the way to be. Um, sure. How do we fight fight against that narrative? You know, how do we fight against that narrative that that's not the case, that the narrative in Lion that, that actually helps us work with and then bring that into our lives? Yeah, those are heavy things to think about. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, yeah, just, yeah. just, uh, just some giant questions. Uh, sorry for waxing poetic. Yeah, I mean, you got a week to grapple <laughs> with the existential stuff. <laughs> well, I, I really look forward to our conversation and digging deeply. Lauren, I've enjoyed riffing with you for these last um, few minutes, and um, I just can't wait um, to dig deeply with the the rest of the crew. Yeah, it should be a very interesting discussion. Well, thanks for uh, for hosting us here. And um, I hope that this was helpful for folks, whether you showed up to the actual conversation or you're listening to this weeks after the fact. All right. Well, I'm going to read my quick little outro script. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening to the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast. If you haven't seen Line, it's available to rent on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. As far as I know, you can't stream the film on any major service in the United States, but uh, VPNs are also a thing, and so are libraries. To learn more about the Anti-Racist Film Club podcast, visit fumcoli.org or follow the links in your description below. This is a monthly podcast, so be sure to follow us on whatever platform you're currently listening to, such as Spotify or Anchor, so that you don't miss our next upload. But before we sign off, I just want to thank you, Pastor Kellen, for leading our conversation oh, today. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. It's been really interesting. I, 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 I enjoyed this film. I think I might enjoy it even more if I watched it again. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got layers. It's like an onion. Yes. <laughs> uh, but that is pretty much everything that we have on the docket today. So thanks for listening. Yeah, bye now.